continuing this section on the Samana. Longpur created an environment in which every element of monastic life provided challenges and learning opportunities for his disciples. His formal discourses provided his disciples with the reflective tools to profit from them. Sometimes there could be an almost sly quality to Lumpur's skillful means. He introduced small tests of mindfulness and wisdom for his disciples that were like the concealed traps of a hunter in the forest. One monk rem remembered an almost comical example. In the midst of a relaxed and informal meeting under Lumpur's kuti, a number of conversations taking place at the same time, Lumpur must have sensed that things were becoming a little too exuberant, like too kind of excited, busy, a little too exuberant, and monks were losing their mindfulness in the pleasure of conversation. Without warning, he stopped speaking and began to sit in silence with eyes downcast. Monastic etiquette deems it impolite to carry on a conversation in front of one's teacher. The disciple takes his cue from the master. If the teacher speaks informally, so can he. If the teacher stops speaking, then so does the disciple. Immediately. But it's hard not to get caught up in a conversation and easy to lose awareness of a situation. The monks carried on talking for a while, one by one, look by look, and then by a sudden avalanche of urgent nudges, they stopped and tried to compose themselves. As if in a theatrical skit, there remained a single monk relating some humorous anecdote, and then, in one awful moment, realizing that the atmosphere had completely changed, Everyone around him was sitting impassively with eyes downcast. There was no need for Lumpur to utter any words of admonition. Can you follow that? So it's a, it's uh, uh, a little less democratic there in uh, Asia than in, uh, in the West, where people carry on happily, regardless of who's around them or what's going on. So it's a bit more um, stratified. So that, uh, and it's very much you're sort of looking to see what the Ajahn's doing. If the Ajahn is sort of engaging and chatting, then you join in. But if it goes quiet, then you go quiet. So this is, um, uh, I, I can uh, very well recognize this kind of uh, situation. And just also, the uh, the message is just, are you paying attention? You know, that's not, it's not to, to make someone feel feel bad, just out of um, being sadistic or making, uh, just trying to make someone... Um, be uncomfortable, but just you know, we're here to train. Are you paying attention? Are you are you watching what's going on? In a similar vein, a monk recalled how, when walking to a local village on arms round, Lumpur engaged him in conversation. In such a situation, etiquette demanded that he walk slightly behind Lumpur and to one side, with the remaining monks expected to walk some few steps behind. All of a sudden, Lumpur stopped still. The monks whose minds had wandered collided with the monk in front of them, and the line came to a shuddering halt. Lumpur, looking very innocent, said nothing. At the next Nama talk, he spoke about the importance of mindfulness and alertness in every posture, for example, on arms round. 
Sense restraint, circumspection, mindfulness and alertness, sensitivity to time and place. These were basic monastic virtues that Lumpur never tired of impressing on the minds of his disciples. He would say that, quote, someone who loses their mindfulness is no different from a madman. And he would quote the Buddha's words, heedfulness is the path to the deathless, heedlessness the path to death. Which is uh, sort of the, um, <clears throat> when Amaravati first opened, that was one of the very, very frequent themes of uh, Lumpur Samedo's teachings. And since Amaravati is the place of the deathless, it's an obvious um, passage to, uh, to quote. So that's verse 21 from the, the Dhammapada. And when Amaravati was opened, then Lumpur Sumedho, uh, uh, there's a little book of his teachings that was put together. It was called Mindfulness, the Path to the Deathless. And that was the, uh, the principal teaching. Mindfulness is the path to the deathless. Heedlessness is the path to death. The mindful do not die. The heedless are as if dead already. Also, speaking of arms round and uh, subtle teachings, then uh, and um, also yesterday I was talking a bit about uh, the, the the way the mind can get attached to particular forms or sort of obedience to structures and taking the obedience to be uh, synonymous with with good practice or right practice uh, in uh, in the the um, uh, vinaya practice or the the uh, employment of the vinaya standards at uh, Wapapong, when you go out on the arms round in the morning unless you are expecting it to rain then you're uh, so the 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 monks have two ropes the the single layer jiwon uh, and then the double layer sangati and if you're not expecting it to rain if it doesn't look like rain you you have to wear both uh, robes on top of each other so you have actually three layers of cloth that you're wrapped up in as you as you go out on the arms round and so uh, most of the year you get extremely hot by the time that you uh, are heading back to the monastery, by about seven in the morning, you're usually covered in sweat and your your robes are, are soaked. <clears throat> so there's often a a, a a period where you've left the village and you're just walking through the fields or out in the countryside, where you're not technically amongst the uh, the inhabited area, and so that uh, the again the Vinaya rule is that uh, for from uh, monks they should have both their shoulders covered if they're outside of the monastery and uh, in, an, in an inhabited area uh, but if it's not an inhabited area if out in the countryside you can yeah, hitch your, your robes up and have a, a so one uh, one side sort of open to the to the fresh air so um, <clears throat> some uh, uh, for some people it was quite customary once they're out of the village walking back to the monastery as particularly when it's a hot season you, you hitch your robes up and just sort of let the air circulate a bit so you weren't quite so sweaty and, and hot and then for other monks this is absolutely disgraceful appalling sort of disgusting behavior and only sloppy and uh, Ill, uh, uh, badly trained uh, monastics would think of hitching their robes up so uh, on one occasion um, a visiting monk uh, one of Ajahn Chah's disciples who uh, at his monastery ran an extremely tight routine and so it was absolutely unthinkable that any of the monastics on their way back from Armstrong would ever hitch their robes up. Uh, it was like a, a, a regular talking point and a, a, a source of a stern instruction from the Ajahn uh, <clears throat> that uh, he came to visit Wapapong and Lumpur Chah took him out to, on Armstrong to, to the, uh, the, uh, the nearest village 
And as they're walking back from the village to, to Wapapong, of course, Lumpur hitched his robe up <laughs> over his shoulder. And so he's walking beside this, this monk, his devoted disciple, who makes a, a strong point of uh, being absolutely verboten, completely unthinkable to hitch your robes up. And, and again, Lumpur kind of blithely sort of chatting away as, um, as if he's forgotten that this is a particular obsession of his disciple. And just to see, again, what... what uh, <clears throat> what does your mind do with it? I am your highly respected and beloved teacher. Uh, you have a campaign against monks ever hitching their robes up over their shoulders. Here I am with my robe hitched up. What does this do to your mind? So he would, again, as uh, Ajahn Jayasaro points out, um, the, uh, uh, he would use, uh, as I say, there could be an, a sly quality to Lumpur's skillful means. So that uh, you can you can imagine it, and, and I wasn't there on that occasion. But they're they're walking back from the village; it's really hot, and then Lumpur just thinks, "Oh, I could." You know, so you know, this monk is particularly obsessed about this, uh, and, and even though Lumpur Chai himself would be telling people, "You know, you shouldn't hitch your robes up, and it's it's bad behaviour," he would just think, "Oh, it's not completely outside of the scope of the of the vinaya, and in fact, it's technically allowable. It's just a." Uh, a particular style, uh, a refinement that we have here, but just just try this and see what see what this does to his mind, and just uh, to use the circumstance of that um, uh, uh, that occasion, just uh, be a teaching opportunity. So the next section is called worldly winds. A monastery does not provide an escape from the vicissitudes of life. That's the ups, vicissitudes means ups and downs or difficulties uh, of life. It does provide a framework in which a wise attitude towards them may be cultivated. The Buddha referred to four pairs of transient conditions inherent in the human realm that needed to, to be clearly understood. And here's uh, Lumpur Chao speaking here. The Buddha taught that the eight worldly dhammas of gain and loss, status and obscurity, praise and blame, pleasure and pain, are inescapable features of human life. Even liberated beings ex experience these conditions, but knowing them for what they are, impermanent, unreliable events, they remain unfazed by them. Lumpur frequently reminded his disciples to maintain a contemplation of the nature of the eight worldly dhammas and not to get pulled about by them. He said that only fools believed they could enjoy the desirable worldly dhammas without ever encountering their undesirable counterparts. They were inseparable. His teachings on the eight conditions were often very practical. They commonly consisted of confronting monks with the consequences of attachment by depriving them of one of the four desirable worldly dhammas or provoking one of the undesirable ones. Mpoor might, for example, test a monk by praising him on a number of occasions and then, with no forewarning, roundly criticize him. The monk was encouraged to observe that the degree to which he was upset by the criticism was an indication of the degree to which he had identified with and taken pride in the praise. On other occasions, Lumpur might give a monk a great deal of attention for a certain period of time and then completely ignore him for a while. The monk would be left feeling hurt and forced to acknowledge that the pain he experienced was chiefly determined by the extent to which he had allowed himself to feel flattered that the attention 
that that had indulged in a sense of being special or entitled. Sorry, I'll read that again. And he had allowed himself to feel flattered with the attention and had indulged in a sense of being special or entitled. So this is a pretty uh, frequent um, training method, uh, both for the uh, the uh, uh, Thai monastics and the, and the Westerners. So Ajahn Viridamo, um tells a, a story quite often. Uh, he was one of the uh, uh, earlier Western monks. He's the abbot of Tisarana Monastery in uh, in Canada um, now, and uh, he was a, a novice for a long time. He had a, a, a student debt that it took him a long time to pay off, uh, and uh, so that he was a, a novice for for a couple of years, and then he finally was able to take big ordination, and. Um, uh, one of the things that is part of our monastic routine is every two weeks we have a recitation of the monastic rules. So the, the way that it's done is uh, the nuns have the same kind of uh, system. Uh, every two weeks, one member of the, of the monastic community sits down in the middle of the whole group and you recite your monastic rule. So uh, the, uh, and you, the, for the bhikkhus, that's done in the Pali language. So it's about 13,000 words and you have to get them all right. And you have a checker uh, that sort of sits opposite you, and as you recite, then if you make a mistake, then they stop you, and you have to repeat it. So the the whole thirteen thousand words have to be uh, correct uh, verbatim. So uh, this is a, a bit of a task to to learn that it takes a, a good a few months for most people or longer, and uh, <clears throat> so it's it's a bit of an undertaking, and also it's a bit. Uh, uh, say emotionally challenging, sitting in the middle of the whole group of uh, of the community and having to do a uh, this recitation with everyone watching and listening and knowing that uh, you know that you've, you've got to get it right. So uh, uh, Ajahn uh, Ajahn Cha knew that uh, the young Bhikkhu uh, Viridhamma was was a bit nervous and insecure, and so when he uh, got up onto the 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 uh, the seat and did the recitation for the Patimoka the first time he did it, then uh, Lumpur Chao was full of praise for him. He said, oh, Prafaran Gang Mak, all these foreign monks, they're really good, they're really smart, oh, well done. And he, even when he was in his early 20s, uh, Lumpur Chao used to call him Lung Dawi, which is like uh, old uncle V, because he, he thought he looked like an old man even when he was like 22. <laughs> so he was always Lung Dawi. And, and Lung Dawi is like when somebody... Um, uh, when someone has already had a family and they've left the home life and become a monastic you know, later in life, so lung me would be for a woman, or lung da would be for a, for a man that they've they've entered into monastic life uh, later on. So even when he was young, lung pocha called him lung dawi. So he's been lung dawi. He's now he's in his seventies, but uh, but <laughs> even then he was lung dawi. So. Uh, of course, Ajahn Chah praised him and said, "Oh, well done! Yes, this is so good. You're really impressive, Gang Mark. You know, you've done a really good job." So, of course, uh, uh, Tanviradamo was was glowing and was very, very happy to have that kind of a praise. And so then, uh, and there was about forty or so monks in Wapapong at that time, and so people would take it in turns to do the recitation. But then uh, he was so pleased with having. Done such a good job and being praised by Lumpur Cha the fortnight before, he volunteered to do it again. So, <laughs> you can see what's coming. You know. So, so then he got up onto the the seat and he's sort of going into his recitation. And Ajahn Chah starts tugging on his robe and saying, "God, <clears throat> do these do these Farangs ever wash their robes?" 
this monk really stinks. And, and this, having a, a loud conversation with some of the other monks while he's trying to recite, saying, yeah, these Farangs, they, they pretty much all of them really stink, don't they? And this one's worse than most of them. <laughs> and so that this is why Ajahn V is trying to have his, uh, have his recitation going and this loud conversation is going on very clearly behind him between uh, Lumpur Chah and it's kind of tugging on his robe and kind of really just t- doing his best to throw him off balance and to, again, just to see what the, what the HNV would do with praise and what does he do with criticism uh, or being made fun of. And then that, that will be the, the task for you to see that the, the degree to which you invest in the praise and you believe in the flattery and, and, and the um, approval is exactly proportional to the degree which you feel hor- you know, un- uh, resentful and hurt and annoyed and frustrated and angry. That they, they match each other, and that, that's the, the task is to see. Oh look, <laughs> that uh, <clears throat> because of this there is, there is that you know, the the one is the cause for the other, and so that it's a, an ideal learning situation. So before we go on to the next section which is about study. Any questions or reflections, thoughts? Okay. So the next section is called Transmitting the Theory. Lukewarm, quote-unquote, would probably best sum up the attitude of the forest monasteries of Isan to the academic study of Buddha Dhamma. It's a good opening sentence. <laughs> so, the not particular lukewarm meaning that not particularly interested. Like lukewarm water is water that's uh, not exactly cold, but certainly uh, not not hot. So, and in English usage, to have a, a lukewarm feeling is like yeah, kind of take it or leave it. Not particularly impressed. So, lukewarm would probably best sum up the attitude of the forest monasteries of Isan to the academic study of Buddha Dhamma. With their focus on the practice and realization of the truth of the teachings, the abbots of these monasteries have considered in-depth study of them to be a two-edged sword. While they recognize that a knowledge of key teachings provides a necessary theoretical basis for practice, they have been suspicious of the seductive nature of study. Gaining more and more intellectual knowledge about the path can easily come to seem more important than actually walking it. Over the years, Lumpur gave many analogies for such an error. He said it was like a person who pours over a map but does not make the journey, or one who reads the label on the medicine bottle but does not take the medicine. Lumpur and his contemporaries expressed concern at how book learning tended to stimulate the speculative, restless traits of their disciples' minds that other aspects of the training were designed to restrain. Most importantly, perhaps, they were concerned by the way in which concepts absorbed from the texts created expectations in the minds of their disciples that hindered, rather than helped, their meditation. One of Lumpur's most well-known injunctions to newcomers was, quote, don't read books. Read your mind, unquote. And again, here's Lumpur speaking. You may know how to write the word greed, but when greed arises in your mind, 
It doesn't look like the word. Anger is the same. You may have it down on the blackboard as an arrangement of letters, but when anger arises in your mind, you don't have time to read anything. It's already too late. This is very important, extremely important. Your knowledge is correct. You've spelt the word correctly. But now you have to bring it inwards. If you don't do that, then you won't know the truth. On reaching a state of meditative calm, he said, the tendency of the scholar is to instinctively reach for his knowledge of the texts to interpret what he's experiencing. That movement of the mind to name or classify the experience causes the experience to dissolve. And Lumpur is speaking here. If a student of the texts grasps on tightly to his knowledge and upon entering peaceful states likes to keep noting, what's this? Is it the first absorption yet? Then his mind will simply make a complete retreat from the calm and he'll get nothing from it. Why is that? Because he wants something. The moment there's craving to realize something, the mind withdraws from the calm. That's why you've got to throw away all your thoughts and doubts and take only your body, speech and mind into the practice. Look inwardly at states of mind, but don't drag your scriptures in there with you. It's not the place for them. If you insist on doing so, then everything will go down the drain, because nothing in the books is the same as it is in experience. It's precisely because of this attachment that people who study a lot, who have a lot of knowledge, tend to be unsuccessful in meditation. It was not that the forest monks rejected study altogether. They were exceptionally thorough in their studies of the Vinaya, particularly of the Pubasika commentary. Indeed, the importance they gave this text is one of the defining characteristics of the whole tradition. Many monks had, moreover, also completed the Thai Sangha's national three-tier Dhammavinaya curriculum, the Naktam, before they became disciples of Lung Puman. Uh, Lung Pocha himself falls into this category. And so began their practice in the forest with a solid theoretical foundation. Nevertheless, the forest sangha's apparently dismissive attitude to study tended to raise the hackles of scholar monks, many of whom saw the forest monks as ignorant mavericks, following their own opinions rather than the words of the Buddha. In fact, a low-level mistrust between meditators and scholars has been a feature of sangha life since the time of the Buddha. In one sutta, Venerable Mahachunda sensibly encourages the forest monks and scholars to appreciate each other's good qualities rather than criticize their shortcomings. That's in the Anguttara Nikaya, Book of the Sixes. In the case of Watpapong, the relationship with the scholarly community took a significant turn for the better in 1967, when a locally prominent scholar, Ajahn Maha Amon, joined the Sangha and was enthusiastic in his praise of Lumpur. In one respect, Lumpur's emphasis on oral transmission of the teaching within the context of a teacher-student relationship was a return to the ways of early Buddhism. If there was a weakness to his impromptu style, it was that his Dhamma talks, being unsystematic by definition, did not cover the whole breadth of Buddha Dhamma and were difficult to remember. Their strength lay in his grounding the theory of Dhamma, Pariyati, firmly within the lives of his disciples and their practice, Patipati, for liberation, Pativeta. 
He selected the teachings that he felt were of most benefit given the time, the place, and audience. So just to, to say a little bit about that. So those three, Pariyati, Patipati, and Pativeda, that's a, a sort of standard uh, say, a division or, or a sort of a, a grading of the, the teaching and practice. So Pariyati is the study or the intellectual understanding of the teaching. Patipati is the practice, and then Pativeda is the realization. So that those three are often mentioned as a group, uh, a group together. And uh, significantly, when um, uh, and particularly for the Westerners, and I think that this is also covered in other places in this book, that uh, for the Thai uh, for the Thai community, they uh, they had largely grown up with Buddhist teachings all around them, in, in learning in school or, or um, being taken to the to the, uh, the monastery when they were small children, hearing the stories being told about the life of the Buddha and the great disciples and so forth within their family. So that the the essential teachings and the um, the life of the Buddha, the stories of the Buddha and so forth were very much in the air. And so that one of the experiences that for the Western community coming to Wabapong, you had the same thing. It's like don't read any, close the books, don't uh, don't read anything for the next five years. Uh, just study your mind. Read the read the book of your own jitta would be the the kind of instruction that was um, was given. So people would would follow along with that. Uh, when I went first to Wat Pananachat in 1978, the entire monastery library was a, a one a one bookcase about about this high with about two or three shelves and about about this wide you know maybe a, a meter long and and uh, 70, 70 or 80 centimeters high that that was all the books in the in the uh, the monastery and uh and so that that um that that made a bit of a difference for the western community because Whereas for the for the Thais, they had grown up with a lot of Buddhist teachings and had a bit of a theoretical basis, but uh, us Westerners, we didn't. So that uh, we, all we were really going on was what we heard within the the Ajahn's teachings, and so that uh, one of the experiences that that Lumpur Sumedho had, and when our community first uh, sort of got uh, uh, sort of underway at the uh, Chittaviveka in the early days, what would frequently happen would be that um, uh, people who'd been practicing Buddhists or living here in the, the UK, they'd be very uh, uh, interested to come and visit Chidhurst and to meet the, the nuns and monks and to, to, to talk with us. And I remember Sister Rochina was particularly aghast because she was more of an old-school Buddhist who'd grown up reading lots of lots of suttas, uh, studying those things when she was a, a lay practitioner here in England. But for those of us who'd, who were... Uh, either newly arrived or come out of Thailand, we were kind of clueless. And so that uh, people would come and say, you know, Venerable Sir, what's, what's your feeling about the meaning of uh, verse 21 in the Dhammapada? You, uh, that says what? <laughs> and, the, you know, really, in, in basic teachings we just wouldn't know about, uh, wouldn't be familiar with, and say, well, yeah, the Maha Asapura Sutta, you know, I'm very interested in your your take on that, you know, because it seems like a very significant teaching to me. <laughs> and, yeah, and the, also the translations into English weren't particularly um, good at that time. Probably Bhikkhu Nyanamoli's book, The Life of the Buddha, was the most accessible and reliable uh, collection of Pali teachings. Uh, Venerable Nyanaponikatera's uh, Heart of Buddhist Meditation was also very good, but the 
The Pali Text Society translations of the suttas were largely, they're done by people who weren't meditators, and some of them weren't even Buddhists. So that they might have been technically accurate, but they were kind of unreadable, or not really matching your experience. And very, and often they were put into sort of fake classical language, like sort of Woodstow and uh, Privy, Honoured Sir, you know, uh, or this kind of language that people don't use and, and will be bewildering and like, what on earth are they talking about? So that uh, when we, we first uh, established the, the community in this country at Chidhurst, uh, and this, I was a very junior uh, member of the community, so I wasn't even doing any teaching, but still, you would frequently meet with the, more of the uh, experienced um, Theravada Buddhists uh, of, the, of the UK, and there'd be this sort of blank space where, <laughs> where your knowledge of this, the suttas ought to be. We were very good on Vinaya. We could quote the, you know, all the, recite the Padimoka rules and <laughs> knew that back to front. But the, the sutta teachings, there was a, a lot of um, ignorance there. And so that uh, it became, became clear that, yeah, we were respecting Lumpur Cha's uh, teachings and the standard of, you know, don't uh, put the books away and just read your own mind, but re- realizing, well, it would be good to be able to actually recite all eight factors of the Eightfold Path. You know, getting five or six is not really... You know, if you've been a monk for five years, if you can only get six of the Eightfold Path, you're not really kind of doing your bit. So, uh, so then, over time, it, it uh, became a bit more of a, a, of a, um, a standard thing to be, uh, say, uh, being okay to, to study the scriptures or people who teach themselves Pali and and uh, to to give more attention to that. So over the years, that has there's become more and more of an acquaintance with the, the scriptural teachings amongst the Western Sangha. But it was a big gap. I don't think Ajahn Sundra would argue with me. But it was a it was a kind of um, empty space where that field of knowledge should be. And I remember Sister Rojna being really aghast. She would. The, in Lumpur Sumedha would give a Dhamma talk and, and most of the people there would go, wow, that was amazing, that was so inspiring, that was so wonderful. And Sister Rochna would say, ah, I wish you would quote the suttas from time to time. <laughs> you know? And it was, quite, it was a very, you know, it was a fair comment. You know? And none of the rest of us had noticed that, that Lumpur Sumedha had, had not quoted a single sutta you know, in the course of the Dhamma talk. But for her it's like, how can this be Dhamma teaching if he's not you know, quoting the sutta, not refer- referencing the suttas? So there has been a bit more of a, a meeting of those, um, those uh, say, um, qualities over time, so that uh, it's never been established as a sort of formal system of, of study, but for those who are interested, then the, the, the reference books are there. And then now, particularly with Bhikkhu Bodhi's uh, amazing, um, so productive, uh, uh, say, commitment to bringing the Pali scriptures into a good English and he's also a meditator and a very experienced practitioner so that they have much more reliable, readable and well-referenced uh, uh, sutta teachings that uh, are a really good resource for, um, for the community. I think it, it did attract many scholars you noticed you know, in the early days mm-hmm. amongst the Mostly because Lumpur kind of found the books that really express the big picture. Like the first book he said, you know, I should read because we talked about the mind and consciousness. I mean, the day I came to see him the first time at Chitta, and he said, 
I think you should read Nisargadatta. It will really find it very helpful. So Nisargadatta, and then we went madly into Winning and Rampo. I remember absolutely fascinated by the teachings. You know, so, uh, not so detailed into the list and so on. And then, um, of course, that was uh, you know, Nemkari Baba. <laughs> <laughs> and then Ramdas, you know. Yeah. Um, when I, when I went to Wapananachat, um, and I was uh, uh, Ajahn Titignano, who's also a, a French monk, uh, and so I was, I never even read a Buddhist book before I showed up there. And uh, so I, I'd asked, and he was, one of the, he was one of the senior monks there, and so I said, um, so is there, and I'm a, you know, I've always been a big reader and sort of information junkie. And so I said, so is there something I can, can read that will sort of tell me about Buddhism? Because I don't know anything about the Buddha or Buddhism or anything. So, uh, so he took me to the little bookcase uh, and said, to, uh, says, well, these are the scriptures, but they are very boring. <laughs> <laughs> and he gave me Zen mind, beginner's mind. Said, yeah, this is, uh, it is uh, pretty much what uh, Lumpochia is teaching, so, yeah, but, and it is much more readable than the Pali Canon. So. <laughs> And yeah, and so that it, uh, because at that time, really, the what you had in English was was really inaccessible. That the 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 people had put you know decades and decades into that translation work, but they weren't practitioners. They weren't people who meditated. So that there'd often be radical, um, say, uh, misinterpretations. So like the the word jhana was translated as musing, the first musing, the second musing, the third musing. So to muse is to kind of, hmm, what should I put on the servery for breakfast tomorrow? Hmm. Now we've got all that pasta, what should we do with that? So musing is just kind of thinking something over with that. And so calling jhana, which is a state of one-pointed concentration, amusing, a gap musing it was like completely wide of the of the uh, of the mark so it didn't uh, it didn't um, make any sense and then some of the translators were um, not really Buddhists they they were uh, had much more of a theistic mindset and felt well what the Buddha was really you know, was really teaching was of sort of a uh, uh, you know a profound kind of Christianity before Jesus, you know, 500 years before Jesus was was born, so they would put things into into a language that was, um, say, uh, giving much more of a theistic or, or a, a kind of um, deity-centered perspective, which doesn't match Buddha Dhamma at all. But that was their shtick, as they say. So uh, the. Um, uh, uh, the the Naktam, that uh, standard exams that they have in in Thailand, is the uh, to say um, encompass the basic teachings, uh, the stories of the life of the Buddha, and the, the um, giving a, a ground of, of knowledge. And in terms of, of uh, say, Amravati today, and in terms of, of what's useful to, to study, often when people ask, uh, because most of us are a little bit top-heavy in terms of intellectual realm, um, and do a, a bit uh, more thinking than we really need to, and can dwell in the uh, 
the sort of conceptual uh, realm uh, uh, more than really necessary, then often what I'll say is that in terms of actual information that we need to, to practice, that um, esen- I would say essentially everything that's there in the second part of the morning chanting, the uh, uh, the passage to arouse urgency, and that um, the the second half of the morning chanting, that's pretty much all the information that you need to to practice Buddha Dhamma effectively. Just that it's like about ten minutes. Uh, and that uh, it takes to, to to recite it, and you have the essential teaching on the you know the four noble truths, anicca, dukkha, anatta, and uh, the reflection on the the five khandhas, and it's it's pretty much all there. You know, rupang, rupang, anichang, vedana, anicca, and so forth. That the body is impermanent, feelings are impermanent. You know, body is not self, feelings are not self, perceptions are not self, and so forth. So, in terms of actual conceptual data. <laughs> That's needed. I would say, if you are, if you had more study than you really, than you, than is good for you already, and you don't um, feel uh, interested or, or uh, inclined towards a lot of intellectual knowledge, I'd say that in terms of the, the raw information that's useful, just that in the second half of the morning chanting is is all you really need to know. The rest is helpful and, uh, and can be beneficial, but the essentials are all. Right, right there in that, that that ten minutes worth, I would say. So, to carry on. <clears throat> but in the first year at Wat Papong, with a small community of just seven monks, Lung Po, ever the experimenter, was as yet undecided on the value of the Naktam curriculum. He decided to teach it himself in order to determine the advantages and the disadvantages. It was the first time that he'd taken on such a role since his last frustrating rains retreat in Bangkok when he was a study monk in, the, in his village monastery, which was you know, probably about a decade before. After which he had embarked upon the life of the Tudong monk. He taught the course over a period of 48-hour days. In the cold season, the monks took the exams and all passed. But it was as he had feared. The monks found it hard to integrate the sense restraint and single-mindedness required to develop their meditation practice with the memorization and discussion that are essential to study. Po said, they forgot themselves, he said simply. He found monks becoming neglectful of their meditation. The amount of socializing increased, together with its accompanying worldliness, mental agitation, and formation of cliques. The serene atmosphere of the monastery was significantly diminished. He was, however, at pains to point out that the problem did not lie in study itself. And Lumpur is speaking. In fact, all the teachings point out the way for us to practice, but having begun to study, if you get caught up in chatting and frivolity and dispense with your walking meditation, then you'll start wanting to disrobe. Actually, he said, When performed mindfully, reading and memorizing are forms of meditation. It's not that study itself is at fault, but the lack of application and discernment on the part of the students. Following his unsatisfactory experiences in this first year, Lumpur suspended the teaching of Naktam. In later years, however, when the number of monks had increased and Lumpur became concerned by how little knowledge they had of the basic teachings, he relented. 
delegating one of his senior disciples to provide the instruction. But familiar problems started to appear in the Sangha, outweighing the gains. Eventually, Lumpur compromised by allowing monks interested in pursuing their studies to do so alone in their spare time. The monastery supplied the necessary textbooks and arranged for monks' official registration with the National Examination Board, but everything else was left to self-study. After the exams were over, Lumpur would tell the monks to put their books away and now concentrate on reading their minds. Study of the texts, Pariyati, was useful, he said, but should not become an end in itself. There was no true conclusion to such study. Without practicing the teachings, monks ran the risk of being like cowherds who never drunk milk. There was another kind of study, an internal Pariyati. And again, uh, Lumpur is speaking here. Are you just going to keep on studying endlessly without a fixed goal? Or do you have an end in mind? Study is good, but it's an external pariyati. The internal pariyati requires you to study these eyes, these ears, this nose, this tongue, this body, this mind. It's the true pariyati. What happens when the eye contacts a form? The ears hear a sound. The nose smells an odour. The tongue tastes a flavour. The body contacts a tangible object. Or a mental phenomenon arises in the mind. How does it feel? Is there still greed? Is there still aversion? Are you deluded by forms, sounds, odours? These ears, this nose, this tongue, this body, this mind. That is the internal pariyati, and it has an end. You can graduate. Uh, Ajahn Jayasaro doesn't include it here, but uh, uh, if I remember correctly, the very last teaching in the book, Taste of Freedom, is one that uh, is an exchange that was uh, uh, um, a, uh, a conversation that took place here in England when uh, uh, Lumpur Cha was uh, over here in the, in the 1970s. And somebody, uh, one, of the, the, uh, one of these um, long-standing British Buddhists, had uh, asked him a, a question based on a, a kind of an intellectual understanding uh, of the teachings, and uh, as you will gather, Lumpur Chah could be extremely blunt uh, at certain times. And uh, what uh, what he said to her was that uh, um, you can have this kind of intellectual approach to, to the teaching, but he said this is. But what you're doing, even though you know, you are you are you have a lot of respect for Buddha Dhamma and you're you you care for the teachings. You're rather like someone who raises chickens and he looks after the chickens very well, but instead of keeping the eggs, you just keep the chicken shit. And so that uh, you can do that, but you know that all these eggs are, are not uh, are not really in benefiting you very much. So uh, don't just be um, one who uh, ignores the eggs and collects the chicken shit. That was Frida. That was Frida, yeah. <laughs> I'm not quite sure what her, her response to that. It was not recorded in the book what her response to that was. But uh, it's the last uh, exchange in a Taste of Freedom. The other, well, also the uh, uh, in that same teaching, uh, in that same in that same vein, he uh, says studying the teachings and not putting them into practice, uh, and where the the title of the book, The Taste of Freedom, comes, is where he says it's like being a, the, the ladle in, in a pot of soup, that the ladle is it's in the soup, 
it's immersed in it, so you're surrounded by the Dhamma teachings, but the, the ladle can't taste the soup, it can't be nourished by the soup, so he's saying, you know, don't be like the ladle in the soup pot, you're kind of surrounded by the, the, the teachings, kind of immersed in the, the teachings, and, the, and yet you're, you're not able to, uh, to taste it or to, to benefit from it. Any questions, reflections, intimidations? Any intellectuals here feeling uncomfortable? <laughs> you know, I, I, you know, as I say all this, I'm, I feel a, a certain murmur of embarrassment since my cootie is half filled with books. So <laughs> I have a kind of relationship with the words through my whole life, so that uh, I sort of magnetize books to me. So I'm surrounded by millions, literally millions of, of words in my kuti, so um, I detect a certain, said, hmm, yes, <laughs> <laughs> on my own, on my own part. Can you share a little story about that? Sure, yes. When I was in America, I was taken uh, at a Mayaguri, I was taken by a couple of monks to visit uh, new places that had been built in the forest. And it took us to Yoguti, <laughs> and it took us to Ajampasano's Kuti. So Ajampasano's Kuti was zen, empty, nothing there. And Ajampasano's Kuti was filled up with books. I see this as a kind of expression of everything can be included. <laughs> Different. It's kind of very, for me, it's very inspiring. You know, you know, we don't have to have fixed views about how people function. Mm-hmm. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's quite, yeah, I mean, Ajahn Pasano never criticized me for having lots of books and, uh, and, uh, and he just thought we're different, different characters. That, uh, he wouldn't want to be surrounded by all this verbiage, but uh, somehow I, I have a, a, a kind of a, a a very profound relationship with the word. Apparently, when I was a small child, my my mother thought there was something wrong with me because uh, I just I just sat there like in the in the chair, and I, she said I was. And all the pictures of me of the little baby, I had this really kind of. There never, there's no picture of me smiling as a as a ba- as a child as a baby, up until I'm about one and a half. Every picture just <laughs> this kind of scowl, like. I don't want to be here. <laughs> this is this is wrong. I shouldn't be here. What's happening? But I'm not. I'm just projecting. But there's got this kind of scowl on my face now. And I didn't utter a, a word. Apparently, I was completely silent. I wouldn't make any sound. I wasn't crying. I wasn't. I was just. <laughs> and so my mum was thinking there's something wrong with him because my sisters were, were quite chatty and active and. I just sort of sat there and looked at things and was completely quiet. And then uh, at the age of about 18 months, I just suddenly started talking and then didn't stop. <laughs> so and I, I just, as soon as I started speaking, I was kind of speaking in whole sentences, apparently. So I can't remember, but, but once I began, then <laughs> just the, the verbiage. I said, okay, well, I'm here, so I might as well engage. So I started... Um, Producing at that point. The one of the, just to share one of the family stories is uh, that uh, my grandmother is from Belgium, and every year the whole family from England, my mother and my, my family and her 
my uncle and his family, the, we'd all go over on the boat, on the ferry across the channel from England to, to Ostend in Belgium. And the family had a hotel on the, on the seafront in Ostend. Um, <clears throat> and so this was all very new. I'm not quite two years old at this point. My, um, we'd go over for my grandmother's birthday in August, and so I'm, I'm not quite two. And during the whole boat trip, I'm just sort of... Um, and we hadn't traveled over together with my cousins. We were all, we'd gone sort of in two separate groups. And we get to the hotel, and it's the, the, the way that the restaurant was set up was there's these big picture windows that look out over the promenade, the deek, and then out to the, the, the sea. And so we're all sitting around, the, the whole family, about 18 or 20 of us, around this, this big table by the, the picture windows. And uh, <clears throat> I'm sitting up on a little high chair, so I'm not quite two years old, and sitting next to my aunt. And at this, by, at this point, I'm, I'm very sort of quiet, taking everything in at this point. And then <clears throat> one of my cousins said something like, there's one of the, the, uh, the ferry boats went past the window, and it would go quite close to the, the hotel as the boat was going by. And, uh, and one of my cousins said something like, uh, I, I wonder where those people are going. And apparently, according to the family legend, I said in a very deep voice, they're going wherever the boat is taking them. <laughs> Which nearly gave my aunt a heart attack. <laughs> this little kind of curly-haired thing sitting next to her on high seas, who she, she thought was a sort of mute baby, and then suddenly I make this profound philosophical utterance. So, that's the late family legend, anyway. I don't remember it myself. So the next section is called Working is Dhamma. Working is Dhamma practice. Outside of the annual rains retreat period, various work projects were undertaken, most of which involved the building or repair of Sangha dwellings. Lack of funds determined that much of this work was performed by Sangha members, but even on occasions when the work could have been hired out, it was rare for Lumpur to give permission for that to be done. Work projects provided opportunities for strengthening the cohesion and harmony of the community through concerted effort on tasks that, unlike meditation, had tangible, measurable results. Working for the common good provided a jolt for monks overly concerned with their own welfare and increased the affection and sense of belonging that Sangha members felt for the monastery. Work projects were means by which Lumpur's disciples were encouraged to further develop those qualities of consistent effort and patient endurance that Lumpur believed to be vital to progress in meditation. Certainly, manual labor for many hours, uh, many hours a day in high temperatures and stifling humidity sustained by one simple meal a day was not for the faint-hearted. Work projects gave monks the opportunity to practice mindfulness in more fluid situations and afforded Lumpur the opportunity to monitor how well the monks could maintain their practice outside of the Dhamma hall. Most of the monks were used to hard physical labor in the rice fields. In later years, when the community had grown much larger, work projects gave a means by which young monks and novices could channel any surplus outgoing exuberance into useful activities. So it's occupational therapy for celibate monastics, <laughs> mixing cement, and, uh, carrying uh, carrying rocks and putting up buildings. The when they built the uh, the the wall around Wabapong, so the nuns cast something like a hundred thousand concrete blocks, 
they made the forms and they, so the nuns poured the concrete to make the concrete blocks and then the monks took the concrete blocks and, and built the built the wall with it so it was a, a communal operation the, the wall is still standing on certain projects Lumpur would keep the monks working until late into the night surrounded by hurricane lamps that were besieged by insects some monks worried that their meditation practice was suffering Lumpur replied this is practice as you work look at your mind how does it feel when I ask you to perform this kind of task practice doesn't mean evading things all the time you have to come out and face up to the defilements so that you know what they're like once you've trained then you have to climb up into the ring in the future that's a boxing ring so there's a, often there's boxing analogies in the, the Thai forest tradition very commonly once you train then you have to climb into the ring in the future you will see the fruits but for the time being don't blame or praise just do the work every now and again a disgruntled monk might leave but the vast majority trusted in Lumpur's judgment Achen Liam was one of those who thrived during this kind of practice this is uh, Lumpur Liam speaking during work projects Lumpur emphasized giving up our own comfort and desires for the benefit of others this kind of sacrifice is the dana the giving of monks it arises in a generous heart that considers the welfare of the community in fact there's plenty of time but when we hurry craving makes us feel that we're short of time at Wapapong we don't work with craving we work in the spirit of self-sacrifice we show how making sacrifices for the group is a beneficial Dhamma practice the most legendary of the Wakbapong Sangha work projects was the four month long construction of a road up a steep thickly forested hill to Wat's Tamsang Pet a branch monastery some 80 kilometers to the north of Wakbapong Achananek was one participant so this is Achananek speaking the head of the highways department said that if Lumpur had really decided to go ahead with the project he would send people to help but after two or three days the men from the highways department had had enough they couldn't endure the mamui which is a kind of plant which when touched gives you a lot of itching rash rashes and is very uh, nasty <laughs> so the the guys from the highway department couldn't endure the mamui they said this level of work needs a proper budget you need explosives and tractors it can't be done with this number of people Lumpur sat there and said nothing the day after the highways people left we made our own survey once we decided on where the road should go we got down to work there was hardly any time for rest we would start work at 3 in the afternoon and finish at 3 in the morning we got through one pair of flip-flops after another the work mainly consisted of breaking up rocks and carrying them to where they were to be laid after a time the highways department saw that we weren't going to give up and every now and then they'd bring up some explosives for us and the villagers helped to set the charges it's a very rocky uh, kind of a rugged uh, hillside Lumpur would start teaching lay people after the meal and he'd sit there right through until the afternoon without a break so the meal is about eight in the morning so after the meal Lumpur would, would meet with people till three in the after three o'clock and then the work would start we'd all have a rest during the middle of the day and afterwards when we came out 
he'd still be sitting there talking with the lay people. At three, he'd start work and do the whole shift until three the next morning. Nobody could keep up with him. When he wasn't supervising, he was raking the rubble. It was strange. We were all younger than Lumpur, but we had to admit that we couldn't keep up with him. We, uh, he would never be the one who suggested taking a break. At three in the morning, we'd rest for a short time, and then at dawn, it was time to leave on arms round. Everyone was exhausted, but he kept us going until the job was finished. It was really tough. We put our lives on the line. At one point, I sustained a hemorrhage and internal bruising. I felt a tightness in my chest. I couldn't breathe properly. I think that was the start of my heart complaint. Everything had to be done well, well and quickly. If anyone started to make jokes or act playfully, Lumpur wouldn't say anything, but he'd immediately walk away. The next day, there'd be a Dhamma talk. <laughs> he'd say, act like a monk, act like a Dhamma practitioner. Whatever he did, he did with total sincerity. And, how, and however tired or weary he felt, I never heard him once complain. In the mid-1970s, a new Upositor Hall was constructed on a raised piece of land in the centre of the monastery, behind the Dhamma Hall and adjacent to Lumpur's Kuti. As usual, most of the labouring work was done by the Sangha. One day, as the monks and novices carried earth up onto the mound on which the building was to be erected, Lumpur stood at a distance overseeing the work, a group of teenage boys approached him. They followed none of the prescribed etiquette for such a situation. The boy's leader, showing off to his friends, started to ask cheeky questions, culminating with, Why don't you tell the monks to meditate? Why do you make them work so much? A deadpan Lumpur replied, If they sit too much, they get constipated. He lifted up his walking stick and poked it into the gang leader's chest, saying, It's not only a matter of sitting or walking meditation. Meditation has to be balanced by working for the benefit of others, and by the effort at every moment to maintain right view and understanding. Go home and read about it. <laughs> You're still wet behind the ears. If you don't know anything about Dhamma practice, keep your mouth shut. Otherwise, you'll just make a fool of yourself. So uh, the, uh, probably many of you have uh, come across the stories of making the road up to Tamsang Pet in the various teachings of uh, Lumpo Sumato and uh, Lumpo Cha's Dhamma talks from time to time. So it was a, uh, uh, a kind of heroic effort that was made. Um, now, when you drive up there, you, you, you wouldn't know that it was, uh, has such a history to it. But in January, when I took the group from uh, the, uh, the community here at Amravati up to, to visit that, Tamsang Pet, then there was, uh, you, that's the, the way you drive up, through this very road that was made by everyone. Uh, <clears throat> with Lumpur Liam speaking about uh, the relationship to work here, there's a, another story that... Uh, Lumpur Sumedho often tells is that, and I think it was when they were building the uh, the, the main temple, the Upositor Hall of Wapapong, because uh, uh, the Lumpur Cha was giving a, a encouragement to the community. He said, you know, some of you think that the work is never going to end. There's just one project after another. And then he turned around and looked at, at Ajahn Liam and said, Ajahn Liam is afraid that it will end. <laughs> So he is always one who is very happy to engage in practical tasks, and so that, uh, that, uh, and again, you know, even though that might be a bit embarrassing for Lumpur Liam, that you know, he would kind of chuckle, and everyone would say, "Yeah, that's right." He, <laughs> he always likes to be doing things, and so that uh, that uh, you know, Lumpur Charles' comment, you know, he would just wait for that moment that, oh yeah, 
everyone else is afraid. You know, the, the average person, oh, another project. Oh, isn't this going to be over? When's this, when are we, when are we going to finish? He said, yeah, but uh, uh, Ajahn Liam, he's afraid that it will finish. So that uh, he would be aware of different people's dispositions and, and say, that, okay, yeah, even being ready to, to work a lot, always being ready to be helpful, that can have its own downside too. You can be, oh no, the work project's finished. What am I going to do now? <laughs> have to be with my mind. Then, uh, so that uh, that that kind of uh, being observant and then using the uh, the the situation to to say to give instruction and to craft things that are particularly helpful for for each individual and the most uh, common story that uh, Lumpur Sumedha would tell about that work project that many of you I'm sure are familiar with is that after he was there for two or three days and breaking rocks and uh, these twelve hour work shifts and he was really exhausted and was frazzled and his mind was all over the place and so quite sincerely he went to Lumpur Cha and said you know Lumpur you know my mind is really a mess and I think you know this is not really helping my meditation so I think if it's okay you know I'll if I could practice meditation rather than joining in the with the work crew and then that would be I think that would be really uh, uh, for the the greatest benefit for everybody and so then Lumpur to his surprise Lumpur Chah said that's fine very good Sumedha you know you're a serious monk but uh, I better inform the Sangha so everyone knows that you got my permission for this and again it was like this sort of sly uh, playful side of Lumpur Chah's uh, nature. So uh, he gathered everyone together either at the beginning of the work period or after the meal and said, So I want to make an announcement to the Sangha uh, so that Tan Sumato, he's a very serious meditator, he's a serious practitioner, unlike some of you guys. So he's asked permission to not join in with the rock breaking and the road building and to practice meditation and so I've given him permission for this so none of you are to have any negative thoughts about Tansumato he has my blessing he's a serious meditator you know and, and he could really crank it up and so so at the time Ajahn Sumato was quite pleased and thought oh God. I've got I've got I've got a pass here this is great but then uh, when he went off to go and sit in the little kuti and meditate then of course he can hear the sounds of all the, the work going on in the background he's trying to concentrate and then there's this uh, little voice in his mind saying Sumedho you are an idiot <laughs> what the hell are you doing and uh, so after about two days, three days he couldn't stand it anymore and just went out there got the, got the hammer and started breaking rocks joined in with everyone else Okay, that's enough for today.